We are back. As promised at the top of the show, we will now go to our environmental correspondent to talk about, well, we'll let that unfold. Jennifer Davidson, welcome back to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here and talk about something that I am most passionate about. Now, the current edition of the Sacramento News and Review includes your article about elephants. Yes, it does. It's about the mistreatment of circus elephants, which is something not many people are aware of. Well, I was quite unaware of it, so how, how is it circus elephants are being mistreated? Before you can look at the way an elephant is treated, you need to look at the way an elephant came into the circus. And as everybody knows, our elephants are from Asia and Africa. The ones in the circus are all from Asia, so we'll start there. These elephants are very social beings that are in intellectual herds. They have tight-knit relationships with their herds. Their relationships are as individual with one another in their herd as, as our very own relationships with one another. And everything that these elephants do is, is within the herd. They travel together. They look for food together. They um, pass on the wisdom of where seasonal water holes are. They learn through wisdom and experiences, and they're very much like an old-world family. That's what they remind me of. And they benefit from the social structures of the, the older, wiser animals that teach the younger. Exactly. And everything depends on that structure of that herd being intact. And what happened before 1970, when the Endangered Species Act um, came into effect, was these elephants would be herded together, captured, the older elephants slaughtered, and the babies became those circus elephants that we see today. And so many of them have watched their families um, be massacred, were ripped away from their families, crated off, and began their life in a very fear-based dominance relationship with human beings. These elephants would be um, held as, as captives. They're chained most of the day. They are beaten and prodded and lacerated with these horrible tools called bull hooks. And um, that is the way that an elephant is taught to perform. It's not because they love their owner or the circus masters. They are merely responding from fear-based control. Well, Jennifer, I, I know in Thailand that they use elephants to move logs about, and they actually have a tourist attraction where people go to, to see this, and, and they're, they're like farm animals. They're, they're working animals, beasts of burden. Is it the same thing over there as far as you know? Do they capture only the babies, or the adults just impossible to train? or Do, do we know? That would be my best guess as well. Um, but, but like I mentioned, no, no elephants have been able to be captured from the wild since 1970 when the Endangered Species Act prevented the take of any endangered species, which the Asian elephant is. So what, what happens today is that circuses will breed their elephants so that they can replace their older performers. Circuses like to call that part of their conservation program, and they have an element in there where they may lend or trade an elephant with a zoo. But 
you have to think about it in scientific terms. Are you conserving the species by merely breeding it and treating it to a life of torture? Is that conservation? No scientist I know would ever agree that it is. No animal that they breed is ever being released into the wild. So even in a zoo, there's little conservation for the species. Yeah, I'm reading in your article, I'm sort of horrified to note it notes that a circus elephant will spend 11 months out of the year traveling in a solitary boxcar in chains. That's, that's quite a horrible thought. Yeah, it, it's disgusting. It's horrible. It makes my stomach sick. We think about putting ourselves as very social, highly intelligent creatures in a box that's mu- not much bigger than we are with one arm chained on one side and one leg chained on the other so that we couldn't move as well. That is the existence of a circus elephant. I can tell you, Jen, that when I was in in Burma, uh, I don't know, 18 years ago, I guess, the zoo in Rangoon was not like a zoo here. It was rather unregulated. So we were able to get up very close to the animals and interact like with the chimpanzees. But I was struck to this day by the sight of this elephant that they had that was chained, one leg in the front, one leg in the back. And the elephant would repetitively move forward in what limited uh, mobility that he had. It resembled, to my eye, like a mentally ill person uh, doing repetitive rocking-type motions. It was very, very disturbing to watch. When you see an animal pacing like that in a zoo or anywhere else, it denotes a disturbed animal, an animal that is bored, an animal that realizes something is amiss here, and you just can't replicate what um, nature provides for these animals, and particularly elephants who travel many, 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 many miles a day. These are grazing, roaming creatures with their herd who, who are used to communicating and verbalizing and vocalizing and experiencing and the world themselves and, and um, hanging out in a watering hole and giving themselves a mud bath and all of these very highly evolved behaviors, just sickeningly sad to imagine them not having anything but a boxcar and chains on oh, their way. I, I couldn't agree more. So uh, with a minute we've got left, what, what can we do? The most important message here is that people can make a difference. It's almost a twisted beauty to, to this whole issue. People are the reason that these creatures were taken out of the wild and put in shackles and allowed to be solitarily confined and treated so horribly. And we can take a stand now and make a difference in these elephants' lives. Like, talk to your legislator. Don't go to the circus. I guess that's the key thing. I guess if you don't go, then there'll be no market for them, and they may have to sell them off to safari parks or something. Well, actually, I want to say very quickly, pause in San Andreas, which is about an hour and a half outside of Sacramento. Saturday, October 20th, is having their annual elephant great stop. You have to check them out at pawsweb.org. They're a huge um, sanctuary for um, abused performance animals, and they have, they have several elephants and, and other creatures. But this is a fantastic organization that works very hard um, to protect these animals and rescue them from circuses and other facilities. So find out what's out there. Tell somebody don't accept the beauty and the glamour of the circuses. It's not so. It's just not so. Jennifer, thanks for the update. Uh, Jennifer Davison's article is in the current edition of the Sacramento News and Review, and I'm sure she'll be back to talk about more environmental issues in the weeks to come. You bet. Thanks so much, Doug.
All right, uh, we have a few minutes left in this segment. I should take some of that to direct you to Vanity Fair magazine. The October issue has a fabulous article. That's the one with Nicole Kidman on, on the cover. A uh, fabulous article about Al Gore. Specifically, how the major media in this country slammed Al Gore in the year 2000 while they pretty much gave George W. Bush a pass. And let me state, dear listener, if you don't remember it that way, you don't remember it correctly. And as proof, we offer the article, Going After Gore, by Evgenia Peretz. And I can't resist quoting a bit from the article. Uh, Specifically, when Al Gore is asked how does he feel about everything that's transpired since the year 2000, he replies, I feel fine, adding, but when I say that, I'm reminded of a story that Cousin Minnie Pearl used to tell about a farmer who was involved in an accident and sued for damages. To paraphrase, at the trial, the lawyer for the driver of the other car cross-examined the farmer, saying, Isn't it true that right after the accident you said, I feel fine? The farmer said, Well, it's not that simple. He went on to explain that the other car rammed into him and threw both him and his cow from the truck. When a highway patrolman arrived and saw the badly injured cow struggling, he shot him between the eyes. Continued the farmer. The patrolman then came to my side and said, how do you feel? So I said, I feel fine. Of course, I do have to add, if Al Gore had cracked a few more jokes like that seven years ago, he'd be president today. The Republicans would not have been able to steal enough votes. But what's fascinating to me is all all these stories about uh, Gore claiming he discovered Love Canal, that he was the basis for the the book Love Story, that he invented the Internet. All those quotes were known to be wrong and taken out of context, and yet the press kept beating Al Gore up with it. It's a rather rather telling quote cited in the article from uh, Time Magazine's Margaret Carlson, speaking to Don Imus, said back in 2000, You can actually disprove some of what Bush is saying if you really get into the weeds and get out your calculator or look at his record in Texas. But it's really easy and it's fun to disprove Al Gore. As sport and as our enterprise, Gore coming up with another whopper is greatly entertaining to us. So, yeah, you can actually disprove some of what Bush is saying if you really get into the weeds and get out your calculator. This from a representative of the liberal media. But I love the fact that, you know, Bush was seen to be, you know, a guy you want to go out and drink beer and fish with (laughs) was apparently a major contributor to uh, a lot of people wanting to run out and vote for him. In fact, the simple fact that Al Gore didn't stumble over words was seen uh, by Time Magazine's Frank Bruni as as a bad thing. Quote, and and I love this quote, quote, It was not enough for Vice President Al Gore to venture a crisp pronunciation of Milosevic as in Slobodan, Mr. Gore has to go a step further, volunteering the name of Mr. Milosevic's challenger, Vojislav Kostunica. As if being able to pronounce four names was just a ridiculous thing for a chief of state. Anyway, it's a sad commentary when you have to go to Vanity Fair magazine for the best political writing you can find in America. We haven't even gotten to the other two articles in that issue, Inside Bush's Bunker by Todd Purdom and How $9 Billion in Cash Vanished in Iraq by Donald L. Bartlett and James Steele. We'll try to get get to those in the weeks to come. And in other uh, presidential political news, it appears that John McCain is continuing his meltdown. He stirred controversy last week when he told an interviewer that he would probably not vote for a Muslim candidate for president because this nation was founded primarily on Christian principles. McCain told a website that covers religion he would prefer a president with a grounding in my faith. 
Trailing badly in the polls, McCain's been seeking support from Christian conservatives whom he alienated during the 2000 presidential campaign by dismissing them, correctly we would note, as agents of intolerance. But McCain, who has identified himself as an Episcopalian throughout most of his political career, recently announced that he was an active member of a Baptist congregation in Phoenix. Uh, Not coincidentally, South Carolina, an early primary state, has a large Baptist population. You may recall that it was in uh, in 2000 that uh, the McCain campaign was derailed after thumping Bush up to that point when uh, Karl Rove pulled out the stops to imply that, you know, John McCain appears to have a black baby. And while it is true that Senator McCain and his wife did adopt a child from Bangladesh, that appeared to have been close enough for them Baptists down in South Carolina. And sorry, if you're a progressive-minded Baptist from South Carolina, we, we don't mean to tar you with that same brush. We don't wish to engage in stereotyping. You know, we do like The Week magazine on this program because it does condense things down rather nicely, stories that we've been meaning to cover. We find are summarized so succinctly in the magazine that we sometimes uh, use their version. And casting a wide net as they do, they pick up things we we sometimes miss because we don't spend a lot of time, we admit it, uh, perusing the business section of of the Bee or Fortune magazine, etc. So here's some items we missed. This is in the realm of business. The Washington Post noted last week that although corn prices are at record highs, corn growers will collect $10.5 billion in federal subsidies over the next five years. A study by Forbes magazine noted that not taxing the $113 billion U.S. marijuana industry plus enforcing anti-marijuana laws is costing the U.S. taxpayer $42 billion a year. That's according to a study at George Mason University. My goodness, with that kind of money, you could, you could finance this debacle in Iraq for what, 19 weeks? Finally, here's my favorite item from, called from the business pages. According to the New York Times... of U.S. CEOs have contracts that call for them to receive severance payments even if they're fired for committing fraud or embezzlement. Gee, but it's great to be back home. Home is where I want to be. All right, let's take a short break and come back to speak with our former general manager, Stephen Valentino. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Come here for, boy, you better get your bags and flee. You're in trouble, boy, now. 